Welcome to Reclaiming the Faith with Phil Baker, a podcast with a mission to reveal what the earliest Christians believed about the core issues facing us today. You can find links to all of Phil's resources at philsbaker.com. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen today and take a moment to share this podcast with your friends. Now, here's Phil. In episode 106, Dr. Judd Burton is back to talk about his upcoming book on witchcraft, The Book of the Grey. We not only talk about ancient witchcraft, but modern forms as well, and discuss how God's people of past and present times have fallen into syncretistic involvement with this forbidden practice. You can find links to this book and all his resources on his website's tioba.org and burtonbeyond.com. You can also contact him at professorburton at yahoo.com to find out more information. If you're blessed by this episode, please consider leaving a positive rating and review on my Apple podcast channel, Reclaiming the Faith. Also, you can visit my Patreon page, patreon.com slash philsbaker, if you feel led to contribute to this ministry, and doing so for $5 or more a month will get you access to many, many previous videos, along with two new videos every month, one of an acoustic like tutorial of how to play one of my songs, and also uh, a video detailing one of the early Christians or an early Christian document. I'm blessed to be a part of Omega Frequency along with BDK and Kurt, who are putting out great content every week on our YouTube channels, Omega Frequency and Omega Frequency Live. So please go and subscribe there. Also, feel free to contact me if you have any questions about what I talk about here on Reclaiming the Faith at email philsbaker at gmail.com. Well, without any further ado, let's get episode 106 with Judd Burton rolling. All right, Dr. Judd Burton, thank you again for coming on Reclaiming the Faith. My pleasure. All right. Well, uh, Dr. Burton, can you tell us a little bit about your new book on witchcraft and um, why did you want to write that? Uh, certainly. The uh, The book is called The Book of the Gray, uh, and it's a, it's an, an anthology of sorts. In other words, it's it's comprised of, of articles and papers that I've written over the last several years. Um, I've actually actually had a long-standing interest in witchcraft. Um, one of my teaching fields, the, the, his, the religious history of early modern Europe, dealt quite a bit with witchcraft and, and magic during the, 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 what would essentially amount to the Renaissance era, the early, early modern era, leading up to the scientific revolution and the, the Enlightenment period. Uh, and of course, as a uh, as I worked on my anthropology degree, um, I also focused in on the anthropology of religion and ended up actually writing my thesis on a neo-pagan community. So it's a long-standing interest that I've had, um, not just from the anthropological historical end, but also from the the biblical perspective, uh, super you know spiritual warfare uh, sort of perspective as, as well. Uh, but it it it's broader in scope than my thesis is because it the the papers deal with different uh, taxons, if you will, of witchcraft um, over space and time. So it covers covers elements of the history of witchcraft uh, from from many different cultures and 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 over different historical periods. Wow. Well. Yeah, I guess it's important to define terms since it's getting manifested in different ways at different times. So can you like define for us the historical witch and witchcraft? Well, that's the, that can be some murky water, but the 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 best definition that I run across is really the anthropological definition and it, it's a 
it consequently fits well with the the biblical definition of witchcraft as well. You know, witch is a, a an individual; they may be male or female, who who uses supernatural means to subvert or attempt to subvert natural laws for their own purpose, uh, and they typically operate um, counter or anathema to whatever is considered the cultural norm or the cultural. Uh, you know, what the normal morality is within that given culture. Uh, um, and the, these two things are, are the, the bedrock for any definition, really, uh, of, of witchcraft. Um, now, the, you're going to find all kinds of modern, you know, twists and variations on this theme, particularly when it comes to neo-paganism, which I treat as an entirely different you know, if you want to break it down taxonomically, that's an entirely different phylum or or kingdom mm. uh, of of the study of witchcraft. Um, what what I'm focusing on more more and more these days is, is something that I've come to call the primal witch, which goes back to the the pre flood uh, information that the watchers shared with humanity. So, how would the primal witch? Um compare and contrast and i'm sorry this isn't like in the uh in the notes but it was just making me think how how would the sure. primal witch uh the the pre you know deluge witch uh compare and contrast to maybe more of um an old testament uh three thousand years ago type of witch like the witch of indoor in first Samuel? Mm -hmm. well the interesting thing about about the primal witch and i wrote about this in an interview with the giant um is that it sets the precedent for um, the satanic witch or the, the Luciferian witch because you have that direct tutelage between this nefarious fallen entity and the individual or, or small group of individuals. Uh, so that that demonic tutelage is something that that where the precedent is set for it in the pre-flood world. Uh, and so in that respect... Um, or you're typically not dealing with the fallen angel who's teaching uh, this this primal witchcraft in the Old Testament era and in, in the ancient world. Uh, it's the unclean spirits who are the the um, uh, the heirs to watcher knowledge, and they're they're passing that along to um, they're passing that along directly to a, a student. Um, and there are a number of cases, you know, you referenced the Witch of Endor, um, probably the best known uh, of these kinds of, of, of people that trafficked in spirits. In fact, that's how she's described is a, a person with an obe, which is the Hebrew word for a demon or unclean spirit. Mm. Um, and you, people can read about this in First Samuel 28. And a lot of people, a lot of listeners, of course, will be familiar with the prescriptions against witchcraft and the Levitical laws about, you know, suffer not a witch to live. Well, there was a reason that it was a capital crime is because they were, they trafficked with with the uh, the spirits of the, uh, largely the Rephaim, these, these dead you know the, the the spirits of these these uh, earliest of the post flood giants um, who masqueraded as as the dead uh, uh, dead humans, um, and so necromancy, divination of all kinds, uh, these are sort of lumped together under the umbrella of witchcraft in the Old Testament. And so, in that respect, um, it's, it's it falls very much in line with the precedent that's set in the pre-flood world. <clears throat> no, that's, Oh, go ahead, man. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, I, it just occurred to me that, um, the, the backdrop for the witch of Endor, the story of the witch of Endor is that Saul had, had issued additional edicts beyond the Levitical laws outlawing, uh, this sort of thing in Canaan is, and so the the uh, these sort of solitary professionals who had existed 
in Canaan in the Phoenician lands uh, before the Hebrews returned um, during the conquest era. Uh, when the when the United Kingdom is established, uh, probably more so by because of the direction of prophets and less so because of Saul himself. We already know what sort of a character Saul was yeah. as a king. Uh, but nonetheless, these individuals had been uh, sort of driven underground. They were certainly still around. Uh, and indeed, the, story, the very story of the Witch of Endor where Saul is actually consulting, you know, these witches, uh, uh, or this witch in particular, also tells you what sort of a person uh, Saul was just in terms of his character and and. And how, how devoted or how not devoted he was to Yahweh. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't remember what chapter it is in in First Samuel where uh, rebellion is linked to the sin of witchcraft. And, yes. And Saul is the Holy Spirit's taken from Saul because of his rebellion, and evil spirits given to him. Right. Well, and there's a reason why that that edict was handed down that that rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft because it, it links back to the pre-flood world. Um, the ultimate rebellion, the, the, the satanic coup against Yahweh basically led to this, um, this corruption of humanity at the hands of the watchers. Yeah. And so like, even though Saul knew this behavior was forbidden, he was drawn to it. And it seems mm -hmm. to be a pattern throughout um, the the Old Testament and some mm -hmm. New Testament as well, people that know the sure. wrong thing, but they still do it anyway. Why do you think the children of Israel kept being drawn to uh, witchcraft and kept participating in it? Well, um, you know, if anything, the, the Old Testament, the Bible in general, is a story of a lot of people who screw up and get <laughs> second, third, fourth, fifth chances. Yeah. Um, the the image that that's tempting to have of, of ancient Israel is that ancient Judaism was this monolithic religion, and as it was outlined in the Torah and in the Old Testament, uh, and followed by the most devout that it was. But we also find archaeological sites where. Um, there are graven images, idols of Yahweh with a female consort, mm. which speaks to the syncretistic influence of the indigenous religions of Canaan, uh, you know, the worship of the, of the gods of its many pantheon, whether those are the Bells or the Asherahs or, or whatever iterations they are of, of those, those kinds of deities. They were pervasive, and their influence was pervasive because the Canaanites were still there. The Phoenicians were still there. The Moabites were still there. Um, the Amalekites were still there. These people that had lived in that region uh, for centuries, in some cases millennia up to that point, were still in the land. And so that diffuse, that negative, diffusive cultural influence was always really a boiling point. Yeah. You know, we see what it, what it did actually to... Um, the kingdom of uh, the United Kingdom of Israel. Uh, you you have the North complaining that well Jerusalem's you know too far away. We need to have our own uh, you know analog to that up here. And what do they do? That it ends up being you know a, a Canaanite style uh, nexus where you find these you know these things like graven images of Yahweh with a female consort, um, and uh, you know. This this pattern repeats itself, really kind of beginning with um, uh, the Hebrews, you know, complaining about, well, look at all of our neighbors. They have kings. We don't have a king. You just appoint, directly appointed these judges to rule over us. You know, we want a king. We want to be like our neighbors. Mm. And, you know... God is like, okay, you're gonna you're gonna throw a temper tantrum. I'm gonna let you have your king, and you see how that goes. Yeah. And you know, 
the historical record is very clear about how it went. It was, mm. it was divisive. They were, um, you know, you had more reprobates than you did actual good kings mm. uh, in the history of both uh, the United Kingdom and the divided kingdom periods. Um, so it, the, those those temptations were always there, and and just just in general, you know, a lot of the the Canaanite practices were linked with temple prostitution, and this this was very common, not just in the Levant, but you find this in Mesopotamia, you find it in Anatolia, and you certainly find it in the Greco-Roman world. You know, um, you know when John uh, is living in Ephesus, you know he's right there. He probably saw it almost on a daily basis, the the temple of Aphrodite. Yeah. Well, Aphrodite was no no, you know, coy love goddess on a half shell. Um, she was Inanna. Mm-hmm. She was the goddess of, of of prostitution and and promiscuity and warfare. Mm. Um, and so this temple prostitution. Uh, the, the priestesses more often than not perform this function under the auspices of of sustaining uh, the fertility of not only crops but also the fertility of, of people, and that involved the this ritual sex, basically. Um, and that you know that alone was a huge temptation. Uh, and we see that it, you know, it has these negative dividends over the course of, of the um, beginning in the United Kingdom period, and certainly, uh, uh, you know, almost in your face in the divided kingdom period. I, I can sense uh, some of my, um, you know, former uh, teachers and you know, um, just church leaders pushing back on this whole conversation with like an idea of, well, that, that, that was just, you know, the priests trying to control the people and they, they've got perverted appetites and, you know, people have superstition and that's why they get drawn into this stuff. But I, I don't think the, um, the people of, you know, the first millennia BC or before viewed that this, this practice witchcraft as just silly superstition. It seems like they really believed this was real. They, they are getting in touch with real uh, demonic or evil angelic powers that affect the weather, affect the crops, Clearly. right? Affect, Clearly. affect uh, the ability to have, to conceive all these mm-hmm. different things. And so like, how, how would you answer someone who's trying to minimize the reality of these, um, at least the, 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 the power of these practices? Well, a lot of that stems from, um, you know, unfortunately you see a lot of that even coming from pulpits and, and Sunday school rooms. A lot of it stems from bad training, you know, from seminaries and, and things like that, because they, they don't, you know, They've become so whitewashed by postmodernism that you're hard pressed to get that. But it, it, a lot of that stems from a misunderstanding of people in the ancient world in general and the way that they thought and actually getting into their minds. Of course, they believed that all these things were real. They, they, with all of their being, they did. And I'm not, I'm not just talking about ancient Hebrews believing in Yahweh and His divine counsel, uh, but. But all throughout the ancient world, uh, in Mesopotamia and Egypt, uh, these people were, were not only firmly invested in the, the gods uh, that they they you know they professed to, to worship as real entities, but they also believed that there were certain entities, you know, spiritual beings. Uh, evil spirits that meant them harm and had to be placated. And that's why you see, you know, they're all manner of of spells and incantations, you know, outside of the, the sort of Levantine Jewish world um, uh, amongst all, all four of the Mesopotamian societies and all throughout the history of Egypt. Um, you know, you can you look in the Egyptian Book of the Dead or the pyramid texts and the, and the Egyptian tradition, 
uh, and find any number of, of incantations against evil spirits. Um, you know, garlic was thought to, to ward off some of, some of these things. Uh, Mesopotamia, you find a lot of the same things. Um, not too long ago, they found a, 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 a rendering of uh, a, a, a Mesopotamian demon called Bennu, who is basically one form of pan uh, in the East. This would have been an Assyrian version. Uh, and b- below this etching... Uh, were, were incantations to to keep Bennu at bay, mm. and so even even in the pagan world, this idea of of evil spirits out to do you harm was very prevalent alongside with the gods that they believed in that controlled the various aspects of nature and their lives. It's and a- so that, that's you know it's, I'm fond of saying context is theology Mm. you know you have to understand as best we can this side of history we have to we have to better understand the mindset of the people in the biblical world um otherwise we're we're immediately guilty of projecting our own ideas onto that world that may not may not be applicable um you know it's it's really the highest form of historical crime is the projection of, of, of one, not understanding context, and also the projection of ideas that may not be pertinent onto that time period. It was the first, you know, the, the historians that trained me, uh, you know, it was almost like you were in a sermon or Sunday school when they told you that, you know, don't do this. It's called presentism. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, you know, it's almost as bad as plagiarism. So, Steer clear of it. Wow. That's really good. An analogy that's kind of coming to my mind would be people of the 21st century that maybe haven't in America that that aren't used to mafia families. Mm -hmm. Talking to people who grew up in, you know, the early or mid 20th century who were very much in tune with the way Mm -hmm. of the mafia and just us talking to them like it really wasn't that big a deal. And they're mm-hmm. like, no, no, the mafia controlled like every aspect, you know, yeah. of, of the yeah. world. Every, and, and it seems like uh, these evil spirits kind of op- operated like mafia bosses in a sense. Where yeah, the people I mean, are trying it, to- exactly. That's a great analogy because you did, you know, people thought that they had to placate them. You know, it's like paying off the, you know, the mob to, you know, we're going to protect your neighborhood, but you got to pay your dues, you know. Ever yeah. so often when we come to collect. Yeah, it's a very similar sort of sort of mentality. Mm. Well, um, kind of moving forward uh, from the Old Testament to the New, how, how did witchcraft and sorcery clash with the New Testament church? That's a great question. Um, often, <laughs> in a word, um, but, you know, you, you have to remember that that um, so much of the early church is is set against the backdrop of the Greco-Roman world, you know, and I say Greco-Roman because it's it's the Roman Empire, but Greek intellectual and and mythological and religious culture is still very prevalent, um, so that you have this sort of syncretism and a lot of the. Um, you know, a good portion of, of what were known as mystery religions that people had to be initiated into these pagan traditions uh, came from Greece as well. Um, but you still had this these solitary practitioners, you know, who were referred to as practitioners of, of pharmakeia. That's a that's a very common designation in the New Testament, um, and it it means witchcraft or sorcery. And that's a very specific kind of, of you know, pagan practice. Um, they're still operating along the lines of, of, of my definition of a primal witch and also the anthropological definition that we went over, you know, a few minutes ago. Um, historically, it's very interesting because Christianity has to defend itself apologetically almost out of the chute, mm. you know, because... You know, pagan philosophers of all kinds begin writing polemics against, uh, you know, the early Christians. Mm. And so there's this, this, you know, back and forth that's going, you know, 
going around in in the Roman Empire between paganism on the one hand and uh, you know the early Christian thinkers, um, most of whom who had been trained in the, in the same traditions, uh, philosophical traditions that these pagan philosophers had been trained in. So, you know, much to to their chagrin, uh, you know, they were sort of taken aback when these you know these unruly Christians as they often dubbed them, were able to match them argument for argument and often beat them at their own game. And so that's sort of the overlay of what's going on here. But in the you know in the background of all that, you still have these solitary practitioners, these solitary professionals um, uh, who are also at odds with the early church. Um, the The prohibitions against these practices are numerous. Uh, in the Old Testament, you know, or excuse me, in the New Testament, even from you know as early as as Jesus's day, uh, and all all the way you know into the 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 apostolic period, you know the the early church, um, and, and you find these these prohibitions against pharmakeia in a number of passages, and I, I think in many ways just. Just as the Witch of Endor in the Old Testament sort of typifies and personifies witchcraft in that era in the biblical world, I think that Simon Magus kind of does the same thing uh, for the New Testament world. Um, they both represent, you know, the the tutelage of the primal witch. You know, that I've been this this idea that I've been I've been dealing with, um, and. Um, you know, in the, in the case of of Simon Magus, he was very interested in in the power, you know, in manipulating, uh, you know, this this new power that the Christians wielded for his own nefarious ends. Yeah, and that's you know that wouldn't necessarily have been the case with with all of the witches of of the period, uh, but Simon Magus. Certainly, is he? He's sort of interested in the ultimate manipulation of natural law. If if Yahweh, if God is the, the first and the final authority on natural law, then it, it's really the ult, the ultimate, you know, kind of perversion or attempt to pervert natural law. And if you read the patristic literature, you know, the apologetic stuff, the, these kinds of confrontations turn up there as well. Um, he, uh, uh, amongst uh, a lot of the uh, what were called the ethnophrenes, which is the the, the period designation for unbaptized, um, they were kind of uh, you know I hes- hesitate to use the word catechism, but they were sort of going through you know early discipleship. Uh, so they were they were called um, ethnophrenes. Un- un- unbaptized is probably uh, probably not the best translation but it, it's it's the the most prevalent and you see a lot of, of these kinds of, of practices kind of holding on yeah. amongst these populations you know as as classical paganism is sort of you know descending into the background in Christianity because of things like the edict of Milan and then later in the fourth century with you know widespread you know official toleration yeah. and it becomes the state religion, of the later Roman Empire, uh, you, you know, you read about these kinds of clashes that take place uh, between, you know, uh, evangelists and and missionaries of, of all make and model, really. Yeah, there's a, you were talking about patristics. Irenaeus writes about a guy named Marcus, the heretic. Mm-hmm. And he says mm-hmm. that like, it appears, pro- I'm just going to read just a tiny, like just a couple of sentences, but it, sure. he says, it appears probable enough that this man possesses a demon as his familiar spirit by, mm-hmm. me- by means of whom he seems able to prophesy and also mm-hmm. enables as many as he counts worthy to be partakers of his charis, his grace themselves mm-hmm. to prophesy. So it's, it's mm-hmm. and then he goes after women, uh, particularly nice looking ones that are rich. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's man. It's just it's really interesting. Can you can you talk about that word familiar, a familiar spirit? Because that's used quite a bit. Yeah. Um, 
Well, you know, the sort of popular understanding of familiar spirit is is that it's um, um, it's the helper of the witch. You know, it's it, it, it's an animal uh, or animal spirit of some kind, like a cat or a, yeah. an owl or a bird, you know, raven or something like that. When in actuality, the familiar is is the is the demonic culprit. This is the the tutor, you know, um, and the only help that they provide is help that in the end ultimately is going to help their cause. Uh, and so the, the, the witch, uh, in that respect is, is just a kind of tool, um, that the, the familiar spirit, uh, you know, makes believe that, you know, they're going to continue to give them the secret knowledge and power, uh, you know, that they feed to them piecemeal under the auspices of this, this curriculum, uh, for, for these witches. And that's not to say that it's not real, uh, and, and, and doesn't, you know, isn't efficacious. Uh, but, you know, to understand the familiar spirit, um, you really have to dig into, um, you know, the biblical context. And in fact, uh, alluding again, back to the witch of Endor, this woman, again, is called a, a, a you know, in, in the rough rendering of the Hebrew, she's a woman with an unclean spirit. Mm. And so that there's there's a prime example of the relationship between the witch and or her or his familiar spirit. So this the next question that I have feeds into what we've just been talking about with uh, what role does the demonic play in witchcraft? You know, um, in, uh, in, in the patristics also, and I don't remember who talks about this, but they'll, they'll talk about how the demons um, kind of mimic some of the spiritual gifts. Like they'll mimic an exorcism by like causing uh, someone to get... Uh, it's almost like exorcism and healing together. Kind of like Jesus will, mm -hmm. will cast out a demon that can also, and it mm -hmm. also brings healing. Like they'll mm -hmm. afflict someone and then encourage them to go to the witch doctor to then do something to make the demon go away. But it really mm -hmm. wasn't true. I don't know. It, it's the, it's the perverted version of, of like spiritual gifts. So like, yeah. How, how does, how, how else do demons play a role in, in witchcraft? Well, sometimes more overtly, sometimes less so. Um, you know, I, I mentioned neo-paganism a moment ago. And of course, you know, th these are going to be people like mo the modern Druids, your Wiccans, your <clears throat> eclectics, um, people from, you know, Celtic traditions and Germanic traditions. Um, they're even, you know, Mesoamerican and Canaanite you know, neo-pagan traditions, most of these people uh, profess that their their traditions are, are quote-unquote, white magic. Mm. Um, and, you know, I, I know a lot of these people, uh, and I, I think that they're interesting, um, decent folk for the most part, um, but they're still being deceived. You know, it... it and I and one of the disturbing things that that I hear uh, from some neo pagans is that um, the spirits that they had had traditionally been calling are are now quote unquote in this day and age becoming increasingly more difficult to control. Hmm. Of course, the control is a, an illusion. Right. But it was always an illusion, um, and so there. There, there's an example of a demonic stratagem at work mm. in witchcraft. Uh, the more what I would call sinister demonic work, well, my gosh, you know, um, Trump just made a, a, a visit to McAllen on the border um, to try and, and bring more attention to human trafficking that's taking place. Right. Um, I used to live in McAllen. I, I taught at South Texas College. In McAllen, so I, I know the area, and I, kn I know that that that's probably the biggest conduit of sex trafficking, human trafficking into the United States, um, and it's controlled by Luciferians. You know, it, it, it's 
is controlled by the the people who clearly embrace the dark path, embrace the um, what 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 Crowley and Blavatsky called the left hand path. Um, now here's an example of uh, demonic influence um, with just nothing hidden in terms of its its aim, uh, and, and it's it's the 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 stealing of innocence. It's it's the taking advantage of the terror of children, um, using that ritually. Um, you know, we hear that even that kind of stuff le- leaks into the media from time to time. You know, we hear about things like like spirit cooking and uh, um, it's like a adren- my, my ad- goodness adrenochrome stuff. Adrenochrome, yep, yep, which which is increased in the blood, but, you know, through these rituals, these terrorizing rituals, um, blood, often blood rituals. Uh, and I was going to say, my goodness, you know, um, what's her name? The actress that was on Smallville, uh, Allison Mackey, yeah. uh, was just, you know, she was part of a huge sex trafficking Nexium. Uh, ring. And, um, yep, that's the one. It was just, you know, released from prison. Um, after what two years, a two year stint or something like that. Yeah. Um, I think she was like the right hand woman of Keith Raniere, right? I think that's right. Yeah. yeah. I couldn't believe it when I heard it. I mean, I was, I was a big Smallville, Smallville fan back in the day. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. Yeah. That cute little blonde girl yeah. <laughs> on, on Smallville. Uh, but, you know, here's some examples, you know, those are examples of the more, um, what, what had once been more clandestine is now seeping, you know, to the surface. They're, they're not, not as concerned with, with hiding it, with keeping the veil over it. I suspect that it has to do with, at least in some respects, has to do with the, you know, the ramping up of the prophetic clock, you know, as it were. In Mozambique, and, and it may be that this happens um, all over, but there's a particular desire for albino people uh, mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. with the the um, the witches or whatever to to find mm-hmm. them and kill them. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're talking about like innocence, you know, this drive. Why why mm-hmm. is there such a draw? Um, why is there such a pull to apprehend and to mutilate and kill people and a lot of times the younger the better why is that with the witches and the demons well you you know there's an instance uh, i'm drawing a blank on the passage where there there's a group of children that gathers around jesus and uh you know the disciples are you know crazy kids get out of here you know leave leave the rabbi alone um and Jesus is like, no. And then he goes off, you know, on this homily about, you know, basically woe to anyone who would harm one of these children because he knew, you know, you know, not just from his perspective, but he knew because he was God in, incarnate. He knew that, that the innocence of children could be weaponized. Mm. You know, and that's why he... That's why he says that that it's better for a person that harms one of these little ones to have a millstone tied around their neck and cast into the sea. Wow! And so there, there are these, you know, Jesus peppers his homilies with stuff like this all throughout the Gospels, and you're like, I've read this passage over and over and over again, and I, I'd never, up until you know, a number of years ago, had never put that into the context of what's going on right now with with child pornography and sex trafficking and whatnot. You use the term weaponized, which is, that's an eye-opening term, with children being weaponized. How is that happening? Uh, well, you know, a good resource 
is to talk to people, you know, who have who who were raised under the the pall of satanic ritual abuse, and you know, God pulled them out of that mm-hmm. so that they could testify about it. Um, and I've had a number of of colleagues and friends, um, notably Dr. Greg Reed, uh, who were who were like that, you know, they were, they were sort of being groomed, you know, for that. And God took them out of it. Um, there's something about, about the, the innocence and the purity of children, the younger, the better. Why on earth do you think that we've, as a society have secularized child sacrifice? Mm. Under the under the guise of abortion, right? It's the same thing as what people were doing in the ancient Near East when they offered their kids up to Molech or Bel. It's the exact same thing, and we think that that somehow we can sanitize it under the auspices of, of legalized abortion. There's a that's blood sacrifice, and and. Certainly, these kinds of blood sacrifices, many of them non-lethal, take place under the under the auspices of satanic ritual abuse. Um, we know that because the scriptures tell us this: that the blood is is the life, and and that's not just something um, you know. And we we can sit here and, and talk about you know how that links to you know the shedding of blood and the the sacrificial lamb and Jesus you know, as a sacrificial lamb. But, you know, the the thing is, is that, is that, um, the, the sacrality of blood is, is almost a perennial in world religions. Um, not just in Judaism, but, uh, clearly God wanted us to know that there was some sort of supernatural component to blood, that it wasn't just, you know, the biological, you know, oil, basically fuel that kept us going and kept us alive that there was something beyond that you know that was part of the blood and that's that's the thing that luciferians and satanists uh and these you know people that fit the definition of primal witch that's what that's what these people are after that's what they're trying to weaponize at -hmm. the end of the day it seems like you know if, if you run across a demonized person uh, it would be mm-hmm. pretty tempting to want to kill them, but that, mm-hmm. based on what you're saying, like that, that would actually accomplish what the demons want anyway, because it's more right. shedding of blood. So, exactly. There, see, those people are already in the process of being terrorized, obviously. Yeah. Um. So you know, they're the the the, the demonic spirits are you know they're feeding off of that. They they feed off of of terror and fear. Um. You know, and you ask people in, in deliverance ministries, and they'll tell you this over and over. Yes, you know, missionaries that see this stuff, you know, they're at the vanguard of it. Really, mm. uh, they'll they'll tell you really quickly that that this stuff is real because they deal with it all the time in the mission field. So um, you really have to be um, in the proper mindset, you know. And, and if you've done deliverance ministry yourself, you know this. You have to prepare for it. You can't just walk into it, um, or else you know you might fall, you know, to your temptations. You know, this guy's you know beating me up and scratching him. It'd be a lot easier if I just you know sock him in the jaw and you know knock him out or whatever. Uh, but you know that that's counter and anathema to 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 the end. You know the what what you're aiming for uh in a deliverance um if if the demonic can weaponize any aspect of humanity they'll do it they've been doing it for millennia Mm. um that they're they're masters of this and and we forget that in a lot of instances that they're heirs to this knowledge that the watchers shared in the pre-flood world and we don't know all of that we're we're not we're not privy uh 
to all of it. Now, through discernment, that may be revealed to us. But, um, yeah, the bottom line is that, you know, the the destruction and, and weaponization of humanity has been part of the stratagem of the demonic since the get-go. You were, uh, you were talking about deliverance ministries uh, earlier. H- how did the Jewish people of Jesus' day view exorcism? Well, it was integrally tied with disease. And this sort of plays out with, with Jesus' ministry as well, because, you know, a lot of the times when he's casting out demons, you know, as you pointed out a minute ago, uh, these people are afflicted with with physical infirmities, you know, they might have leprosy or they're lame or, uh, they, uh, you know, they, uh, uh, they mutilate themselves, you know, like the gathering demoniac. Um, and so th- th- this was something that was, that was prevalent in the mindset of second temple Jews, uh, but also for, uh, again, you know, expanding that idea outside the scope of, of Jewish theology of the day, um, it was also the mindset of, of peoples um, in other parts of the Mediterranean and the ancient Near East, uh, contemporary with that period, uh, the belief that, that the demonic and, and uh, or evil spirits or what have you uh, were tied with uh, the diseases and physical afflictions of all kinds. <clears throat> and um, so the, the work of a, a, you know, in this case, or, you know, a rabbi um, in, in terms of ridding somebody of, of you know, a, a, a demon or a shaitan, as they called it, um, would have, would have, you know, more often than not involved, you know, some sort of physical affliction um, uh, along with it. So those two things are, are integrally linked uh, in that day. And they, I, you know, they have been for millennia before that. Uh, and even in our day, you know, the disease and the demonic are, are often linked. Um, Kurt Koch writ- wrote several books back in the 70s and 80s on that subject. You know, um, he was a he was a, a trained minister, and he was also a clinical psychologist. Mm. And he always said that sometimes that it's it's difficult to you know discern between the disease and the demonic because so often they're linked. Mm. Um, you know, and he he writes rather eloquently. Uh, if folks haven't read some of his books, I, w- I would highly recommend them. Um, about this challenge uh, to, you know, because he's looking at the deliverance ministry, not just as, um, not just from the perspective of a a minister of the gospel, but also, you know, as a counselor, as a a psychologist. Um, And he recognized that very often, you know, basically affirming, uh, you know, what we find in in Second Temple period Judaism and also in the ministry of Jesus. Was there a, uh, in Second Temple period, was there a <laughs> a form of exorcism that was actually witchcraft? That was, that was dabbled in, maybe by the uh, uh, followers well, of Yahweh? Well, you know, again, you've, you've still got, you know, this, this is, this is before the, the church age, and you have to remember that, that, there are two main powers, outside powers, that control Judea during this time. The first one, of course, is is, is during the Hellenistic period. This is the, the Eastern Greek Empire, basically, yep. um, that was ruled over by um, you know the descendants of, of Alexander's generals. Mm. Uh, in this case, the Seleucids, you know, were ruling over um, Judea first. Yeah. And they brought with them, you know, uh, th- their gods, and, and it's when you start to see, you know, Greek shrine, Greek pagan shrines popping up all over Israel. Um, and of course, many people will be familiar with the story of uh, Antiochus Epiphanes mm-hmm. uh, sacrificing a pig to Jupiter in the temple, um, uh, which was a 
horrendous, you know, ab- abomination. Uh, and then when the Romans take over in 63 BC, and you you basically have a client kingdom that emerges, the uh, the Herodians, in other words, basically become the vassal kings. Uh, um, although Rome Rome still had you know consuls and tribunes there, basically to sort of oversee what they were doing. Um, likewise, the Romans, you know, many of whom worshipped Greek deities, continued that tradition of Greco-Roman paganism, and and under the colleges of priests and the pontiffs and things like that, you still had these these solitary practitioners, you know, who offered their services for one degree or another. Um, and so that temptation, just just as it had been there. Uh, during the the United Kingdom period uh, and the divided kingdom period, it still existed uh, in Israel. You know, during that time period, the Second Temple period, uh, it was just that it was a different form of paganism. Would that be like um, like Asclepius stuff? Because he would be like a god of healing, right? And they would like go sure. through these rituals. And I was just curious sure. if, like, if if the exorcism is linked with healing, if they viewed well, yeah, it, I mean, very often it was. Um, yeah, Asclepius is a good example um, at at Panaeus, Bonius, where I I excavated and eventually wrote my dissertation on. Um, there was an Asclepion, um, but of course the the main deity there was Pan. Right, from which it derives its name, and um, epilepsy was was thought to have been caused by pan. It was called panalepsy mm. in in the ancient world, and one of the uh, one of the measures for you know again according to the pagan rite uh, to supposedly cure or or at least work towards a cure for epilepsy or panalepsy. Uh, was to give offerings to Pan uh, and to uh, sleep in a temple that was dedicated to him. Mm-hmm. And so people would, you know, we have, um, clearly it was happening at, at Panaeus, but there there were shrines to Pan throughout the, the Greco-Roman world. We, we have some pretty extensive accounts of the, the temple to Pan in Egypt, um, which I think was in Heliopolis, if I'm not mistaken, the the big one anyway. There was a lot. We have records of a lot of traffic of people going there to sleep to sleep in the temple, who had epilepsy or who had um, you know night terrors or dream you know bad dreams. They couldn't sleep at night. All of these were thought to be afflictions that that were either caused by uh, and or could be alleviated by pan. And so you do have that element um, to it, and and of course there were there were Asclepions all you know and and shrine, little shrines to Pan all throughout uh, the Levant where people could could do this, and so that idea was was very integrally linked. So you, we're kind of starting to bring it home. Uh, a lot of this conversation has involved syncretism. Uh, mm-hmm. How do you see um, witchcraft infiltrating the 21st century church? Not just like our culture, our American culture or whatever, but specifically the church today. Mm. Well, that's a great question. And it, it, it shows up, I think, in a number of ways. Um, you know, clearly the, the church has been on a... a, a an odd trajectory over the last 10 or 20 years, um, moving more towards political correctness, uh, moving more towards, um, you know, congregations where the, the homilies don't involve mention of demons or hell or Satan or, or the Bible, you know, anything, or, the, or the Bible <laughs> for that matter. Yeah. I think you and I have talked about that before that, <laughs> That Jesus has become a life coach, and, and modern Christianity in the West has become morally therapeutic deism. Mm. Um, I, I think that there's that's there, that's due to this nefarious, more subtle 
influence from from Luciferian witchcraft, uh, where you have these people who are actually infiltrating churches. Um, and then there are other ways where you have the more new age variety of, of witchcraft um, kind of infusing the church, you know, with what I call woo-woo, mm. um, dangerous, but, but woo-woo nonetheless. Um, the, the, the trend over the last 10 or 20 years to acknowledge the, the sacred feminine mm. uh, in the form of Sophia would be an, a prime example uh, of that. And, you know, that sort of harkens back to, you know, things like what I mentioned, finding in the archaeological record, uh, you know, idols of Yahweh with an idol of a female consort. Yeah. Um, you know, I, never in Scripture is God described as having a female consort, you know, um, you don't have to go any farther than, uh, you know, the Shema in Deuteronomy. Uh, the Lord your God is one, you know, not not, not plus one, yeah. just one. <laughs> right. Um, and so I think these are, these are a few examples of how witchcraft has made uh, inroads into the church. Um, and it's largely not been epiphenomenal of contentions per se between you know either luciferian which is the primal which is or or neo-paganism but this is stuff that sort of creeped in you know not at the vanguard but at the back door yeah um and now in some congregations uh it's it's out of control. People are having difficulty separating, you know, what is sound doctrine and what is not because this stuff has crept in, and they're not getting proper discipleship. Yeah. All right. Well, this uh, last question is a little bit more personal. I, I have a buddy who, um, whenever we get together, I'm having apologetic conversations with him. Um, he's kind of mm -hmm. he's dechurched, you know. He's a mm -hmm. few years younger than me, but um, one of the things he said, he was talking about wanting to get into like some DMT, you know, the ayahuasca kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was like, I'll, I'll go to church with you if you do ayahuasca with me. And I'm like, ain't going to happen, you know, no chance. Yeah. Um, like what advice would you give to someone who's seeking to have a spiritual experience through the use of DMT based drugs like ayahuasca? Well, the good thing about this is that um, I, I find that, you know, whether they're interested in, in, you know, the sort of indigenous approach or they're interested in neo-paganism or whatever, is that these folks are already willing to have the conversation. Yeah. Uh, in other words, they believe in a supernatural worldview. You know, they believe in the, the gods that they worship, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the one thing that you might you might tell uh, your friend, and he's probably familiar with Strassman's, you know, the Spirit Molecule, that book that he wrote on DMT, mm. uh, how fifteen years ago or something like that. Um, one thing you might tell him is that, hey, you know, our our brains actually make DMT. You know that, right? right. You know, there's a certain amount of it. You know, and it, these experiments that, that Rick Strassman did at the University of New Mexico, you know, he had, you know, Catholic priests and, and Protestant ministers and, um, you know, Buddhist monks, you know, they were praying and meditating and, and, and all of this. And while they were doing this, they recorded these elevated levels of DMT in their brain. And so, you know, what that says to me is that it's, it's part of our makeup. God intended us to have that. I suspect that we had more of it in our system in ages past because the farther back you go, the more in direct communion we were with the spirit world, especially with God. You know, when you, you're in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve are talking directly to God. Um, so there, there may be some sort of, of biological you know, component to that, but clearly it was meant to be part of our makeup and it's, it's part of our, you know, our neurotheology, if you will. 
Mm. Um, but the problem is, is that when you when you when you take plant derivatives of this, and it's always in larger amounts, right? Um, you're you yes, you're opening up. There's no question that you're opening up that spiritual gateway, but the kinds of entities that are, are that are encountered don't have your best interests at heart. Right. Um, and there's a certain amount of quantification that you can do with the experiences that people have on this because they report seeing a lot of the same kinds of things. Two of the prevalent entities that they see are these reptilian-looking mm-hmm. entities and clowns, mm. um, almost in the vein of the, the Kachina dancers in the American Southwest. That's what I mean by clowns. Yeah. Uh, these sort of, uh, you know, in black, black and white stripes and zigzags and stuff like that. Um, you know, your, your basis, you know, something bad may happen to you. It may not. Um, but you're opening yourself up to be used by these entities by ingesting, you know, these larger amounts of DMT. Um, I would challenge your friend to just be content with the amount of DMT that God is having his brain make right now. Seriously though, I mean, bring that up to him. He may not know it. Yeah. And it seemed like in the way that you're defining witchcraft, it falls into that category because it's seeking like well, the, the spiritual and through an illicit means. Absolutely. I mean, there it's that bending of nature uh, again that I was talking about. And witchcraft is, you know, we do a whole episode on, the use of, you know, hallucinogenic herbs and salves that were made from plants mm-hmm. um, that have been used by witches uh, throughout the millennia. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Burton, for taking your time. Before I let you go, can you tell the people uh, what you have in the Institute, uh, any deals that you have, how they can contact you, all that? Sure. Why, well, you know, there's the, the forthcoming book. I should have that link up tomorrow it, it'll be either be up later today or tomorrow probably um and it'll be it'll be available as an ebook first i know a lot of people read things on their ipads and um tablets and stuff like that um and the book is called the book of the gray it's a series of um uh essays and articles on which on the history and culture of witchcraft uh right now the institute uh, and I teach, cl- you know, classes on this sort of thing too. The institute's offering the um, certifications for one hundred and twenty-five dollars each. Uh, this is through the weekend, um, uh, July the fourth. I'm not sure when your, your editing will be done. This is going to be done if, on if Tuesday. People, okay. Well, if people will will email me and remind me that they listen to your show, I'll mm-hmm. give them the sale price uh, for the certifications, and that includes. Um, probably most pertinent to this, our topic today would be biblical demonology and preternatural morphology, uh, but also the biblical anthropology, um, the new certifications, the ancient Near East, Mediterranean civilization, and mythology are also on sale. Uh, new Testament Greeks on sale for two twenty-five as well. Well, that's awesome. Well, thank you again, brother. <laughs> <laughs>